Good morning in town. Let's turn to the scripture reading for today, which is from Revelation 1, verse 3, and Revelation 22, verses 20 to 21. Blessed is the one who reads, reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Chapter 22, verse 20, he who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. This is the word of the Lord. pray. Lord, as we just read, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We long that you would come in your fullness, but we also ask that you would come embodied in your word and embodied in your people this morning. Pray it in your name. Amen. I hope you all are doing well. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm another of the pastors here at InTown. And as previously mentioned, we've been in a series for the last two weeks on the book of Revelation that we're very excited about. Jimmy's covered chapter one. And next week, David is going to continue looking at chapter two. But today, I want to draw back for a minute. It's very easy with a complex book like Revelation to miss the forest for the trees uh, to be looking so intently at detail and question that you miss what the big picture is about. What is the story of Revelation about? That's what we're going to talk about this morning and how we play into that story. Obviously, the story of, the Re of Revelation is uh, the last book in your Bible, and that means something, right? You never get to a novel and you're reading that novel, and you get to the, the last chapter or the epilogue after the last chapter, and it, it is meaningless. It, it never happens. You never get to a, a series finale of a television show, and you watch it, and nothing happens unless you're watching Seinfeld, but that's the point. And so um, in the same way, Revelation has a, a, a culminative effect, a climactic sense to it. Now, this is, is ironic in certain respects, right? Because when you think about the Bible, the Bible was not conceived of, at least by man, as an individual book. It is 66 different documents written over 40 people over 2,000 years in at least three different languages. And so John, when he sat down and wrote this letter to a number of churches he cared deeply about, he is not sitting there going, I'm pinning the series finale. Rather, he's simply passing on what the Lord has called him to speak. Nonetheless, God has always been weaving a singular story, a singular narrative throughout time and history. And so John, in God's providence, gets to write down words that have this effect, and we would be reading them in this way years later. 
Now, I want to make sure that as we talk about the story, we know what we're talking about. First of all, I don't use the word story um, to indicate fiction. Just want to make sure we get that out there. Um, you can a- add the synonym narrative or meta narrative to this, something overarching with meaning and purpose. It doesn't mean that it's fiction. As Christians, we believe a story that begins in creation. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis tells us, and it is good. And he crowns that creation with us, humanity. Not necessarily special in and of ourselves, but because we're made in God's image and given God's authority here on earth to steward, to take care, to image God in front of everything else, God declares us very good. However, we join evil, rebellion, Satan, sin, death, illness in going against God. Colloquially, this has been called the fall, but we want to make sure as we use that terminology that we don't imagine that we just somehow tripped into brokenness and sin and death. No, we charged, we cannonballed headlong because we believed ourselves to know what was going on and to be able to make better choices than our Creator But God remains committed to what he's made, even in its corrupted state. And so, really, the story of of the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is a story in which we zoom in on individual people who then become a family, who become a tribe, who become a nation. And this group of people, this people of God, serve two purposes— On one hand, they continue in a very broken but attempt way to live out that that original intention that was very good. They are still supposed to image God in the world. They are still supposed to steward what he has given and be a representative of his character in the world. At the same time, though they do that first job in a very broken way, they also serve as a fertile ground for God's ultimate plan of redemption in his son Jesus. God comes himself in the form of a man, of a servant, of a slave, caring for us, loving us, living a perfect life, dying for us, and defeating sin and death forever as he comes back. And so we look forward at the end of all things to a consummation, an end where Jesus does come back and he puts all things right again. This is the story of Christianity. This is the story we believe that we espouse to follow. And Revelation, of course, is this final sea. Um, There are other parts of Scripture that do refer to it as well, but functionally, Revelation's the end of the book. Everything else is just flashbacks to earlier episodes. But interpretive principle, we've been sharing a couple of these throughout interpretive principle this morning. How you read the rest of this story is going to determine what you think about Revelation. We could spend this whole series in sort of a a lecture format telling you about the different historical 
arguments and debates that have happened, and we can give you, you know, a step-by-step symbolic chart of what people have thought every little jot and tittle in Revelation mean. But functionally, you and I are going to find our interpretation for the end of the story based on how we have lived out, how we have seen, how we have moved into the rest of the story. I've seen that in a very real way, and it's something I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning. Revelation's meant a lot to me in my life, and so this morning really it's impossible for me to talk to you about the story without talking to you about my story. I grew up uh, in a somewhat fundamentalist southern church that cared about the book of Revelation maybe more than almost anything else. We're excited to be doing a series here at InTown um, on Revelation. We haven't done something like it in a very long time. We would uh, have done a series on Revelation at least every other year for all 18 years I was at that church growing up. Revelation was really the ultimate part of our theology. I wanted to read to you something I wrote. This is my fifth grade Bible. I was given by the church this study Bible in fifth grade. I wrote this at some point in middle school. Revelation, an introduction. Revelation concerns a few major things. Most obviously, Revelation describes what will come, the end of the world we know forever. Revelation is a cry to come back to God before he comes to judge the world. My tradition growing up emphasized certain elements of the story over other elements. And ultimately, this created kind of a, a truncated theology, if you will, in my life. We cared a lot about the fall. We believed that we were broken, and we desperately needed Jesus. And Jesus had come to save us. And that was the direction of all of history, was that Jesus needed to save us. And then if we were saved by Jesus, our call was to get everybody else saved as well. There was nothing more important than that. As you, as you think about that, and maybe that might be a part of your story as well, or maybe that is a, a part of the Christianity that you stereotyped before coming to faith yourself, it could encounter your story in any various ways. You can imagine how we thought through Revelation then as God is coming back. You better get ready. And if you're ready, you need to get everybody else ready because Jesus could come back at any time and then your opportunity is done. There's a lot of fear. I was afraid for myself, I was afraid for my friends. Some scholars have called this approach lifeboat theology. I want to make sure everyone is getting into the lifeboats, and any other job other than getting people into the lifeboats is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, I want to give you two disclaimers before we keep going. And the first is this. I brought this study Bible with me that I was given in fifth grade. I'm going to make sure not to drop it because it will literally just fall to shreds here. Um, not just to read that passage to you, but to remind myself of something. 
as I am talking to you about a theological perspective that is in a large part very different from what I grew up in, I need to be reminded that I'm a pastor because what God did with these fundamentalist Bible people. They gave me a study Bible when I was in fifth grade, and I have a love for God's Word and for lost people because of it. As much as my theology has changed, and we're going to talk this morning about why I think that is so important, I have to remember that. And perhaps if you have relatives or if you are coming out of that tradition, I want to ask that grace of you as well. Also, this is not the only truncated way to look at the story. A lot of churches today actually look like this. They look at the dignity of mankind as made in the image of God, and they look at creation, they look at art and culture and beauty, and they continue to say it's good, and we're right there with them. But then they look at Jesus, and they look at Jesus' example and his teachings and the desire he has for loving one's neighbor, and again, that is very good. But then they interpret Revelation without almost any negativity whatsoever. We're just excited for Jesus to come back, and it's all going to be happy clappy, and there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of gravity It's the series finale that gets written where all the bad stuff happens in the episode before and you just spend a bunch of time saying goodbye to characters you've fallen in love with. Neither of these approaches is actually what God would have us do. God would actually have us interpret Revelation using the whole story. But I could tell you that In all honesty, friends of mine who remained pastors in that tradition would argue with me that this isn't how we do it. And so how did I get this? That's what I want to show you. Because it's not just about my story or your story. It's about their story. One of the best principles of interpretation of Scripture, um, bar none any Scripture, not just Revelation, is considering what the original audience heard. Why was this book or this document, this letter, this anything written to them, and how did they receive it? This is a big deal because, again, remember, God sovereignly orchestrated his word, knowing that thousands of years of people would receive it in lots of different languages and cultures and times and places, and at the same time, these are real men who are writing real letters to real people. We can't believe that there has to be, you know, 100% continuity with who we are and who that original audience was because I have an iPhone in my pocket that has more information on it than the entire library of Alexandria combined. But nonetheless, there is some continuity. Why? Because I'm made in the image of God and so are they and I'm a sinner and so are they and God doesn't change and neither does human nature So who are these original people? Why do they matter so much? Why would a book like Revelation be written to them? Well, as Jimmy hinted at in the first couple of weeks of this series, the people to whom Revelation are written are largely Greek. There's a few Jewish believers as well spread throughout an area that at least encompassed 
what we believe now to be Turkey, um, but largely probably farther than that as well. But regardless of ethnicity or uh, where they come from, they're afraid. That is the defining marker of the people of Revelation. They're afraid. They're afraid because they feel um, a culture that has never been for them and has turned against them more and more and more as the years have gone. John was likely writing Revelation at the end of the first century, which means these people had survived the reign of Nero, the famous Roman emperor who uh, crucified Christians and lit them on fire to light his gardens at night, some of the most horrific things imaginable. But just as if they have caught their breath, other Caesars will come up and other emperors will have additional persecutions against them, and they see that coming already. And they already know what it has cost them. Christianity um, at the end of the first century is still only probably about 10,000 people in the entire world. And they're feeling the weight of this persecution sledgehammer more than any other sect of any religion in Roman history. They know there's something different about them. And on one hand, they believe that to be the Spirit of God. And at the same time, they feel the weight of death and judgment against them. Now, on one hand, none of us here at In Town on the Pastoral Staff want to make some one-to-one equation with today in that regard. Um, I, I actually, be, because of real deep persecutions that are happening in the world today, I want to make very, very clear it is not really a great idea for us to use deep-seated language of persecution with respect to America and Christianity. It's just not. There might be individual circumstances, and we can pray for those and talk about those, but, but largely we continue to experience more freedom than Christianity almost at any point in time in history, and I include medieval Europe and, Chris, and Christendom in that. Nonetheless, I think you and I would agree that we can, we can feel a tide change. We can feel the wind. We know that it is harder and harder and harder to believe what we believe and have it matter in our world. We feel that. We feel that when we send our kids to school. We feel that when we turn on the television. We feel that when we look at the bestsellers list that comes out and we struggle more and more with the things that we're entertained by. We feel that as we're tempted more and more to not be a part of God's people because there are just so many great options out there. Why Revelation? What's wonderful about these people of God in the first century is that they, perhaps unlike us, and I don't mean in town in, in, in general here, I just mean Christianity in the 21st century, they were not asleep. Christianity mattered more than life to them. Scholars have called the Christians of the end of the first century bookish, and they mean it in the most wonderful way. It's, it's not derogatory towards them at all. These individuals, 
they had a hunger for God's word because for them, they didn't grow up culturally knowing the Bible. We can bemoan the the loss of biblical literacy in ourselves or in our children or in our culture, but in some respect, not having biblical literacy made it so that when these Christians became Christian, what came with them was a hunger to be a part of the story of God on a level that they had never experienced in their lives. Actually looking at a sacred text and devouring it and incorporating it into worship and um, memorizing it and copying it and passing out sheets of it all over, that's not actually common to ancient religions. Often the ancient spiritual texts of other major religions were left to scholars and philosophers and liturgists. They weren't a common thing. But these people, people who didn't know necessarily how to read or write before this, people who were not culturally Jewish and had really no other reason to go back and learn Jewish texts or go back and translate things into Greek so that they could understand them, They had a deep-seated passion to dive headfirst into thousands of years of history to get to know this God. In my work with teenagers, I find uh, sometimes reading just historical accounts of why teenagers exist and whatnot, the term adolescent, why they exist, <laughs> why? No. The term adolescent, the term adolescent was actually coined in uh, 1904 by a guy named G. Stanley Hall. He was a psychologist, and originally he thought through the idea of uh, being a teenager uh, because it resembled the German opera scene of the 1800s. And the German opera scene, if you know anything about German opera, who knows, you might, um, was characterized by what was called Sturm und Drang, which meant storm and desire. It was a tumultuous insanity um, that came upon young people. Yeah, some parents are just joking right now. Yes, you're naming it, exactly. Psychologists would refine this years later, in thinking through the existential questions that we deal with as humans in the modern world. And they saw that the reason teenagers really are teenagers is not just biological, but it's that these questions, these existential struggles, hit humanity first when you start thinking of yourself not as a child, but as someone who's trying to break away from your parents. But later psychologists would actually say, no, these aren't just the questions that teenagers struggle with. These are the things that stick with us for the rest of our lives. Identity. Who am I? Purpose. What am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Belonging. Where do I fit? Who are my people? For the early Christians, these were questions that the Roman Empire either gave them tons of answers about or nothing. Either they were a Roman citizen and Caesar was God and they could stand and fall on the might of the Roman Empire, or they were nothing. They were a slave. They were an immigrant, a foreigner, a woman, a child, anyone who was not deemed to be worthy of having an identity 
or a purpose or any sense of belonging whatsoever. And for these young Christians to be handed a story that said you actually are a player in history, a history that goes far beyond the Roman Empire, that you have value and purpose and dignity, that God himself died for you. Well, suddenly this this doesn't just suddenly become Jesus loved me, this I know, because the Bible told me so. It's groundbreaking. And it becomes worth it to stay up and learn to read so that you can read something that was written thousands of years ago because it was about you. You were implicated in this story. And there was a joy and a hunger. How does any of this have to do with Revelation? I thought this was a sermon about Revelation. Well, it is. The first week, Jimmy told you that the interpretive key to understanding the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. But sometimes people can think of, okay, if that's the case, then what Revelation is, is this book of symbols and the code, the key, the cipher to understanding these symbols is to go back and look up the Old Testament cross-references when I get to Revelation. That's not the case. John writes this book, Revelation, to a group of people who are inculcating themselves in the biblical story, who are soaking in it, who are being changed in the moment by it. And so the Old Testament imagery of Revelation is not a Jackson Pollock painting where John just picked stuff that was going to be scary. Rather, Revelation and all of its cycles and all of its sevens and all of its numerology and all of its bowls and trumpets and scrolls and whatever else, it's actually retelling the very same Old Testament story. The four horsemen of the apocalypse come straight out of the book of Zephaniah. There are at least two different records of the Exodus plagues from Moses and Pharaoh that pop up in Revelation. Revelation talks about Egypt, and it talks about Babylon, and it talks about Rome. It talks about all of the different enemies of God's people throughout time, and it tells the same story over and over again. Rihanna already mentioned it. Jesus is king. God wins. The people of God have always felt that they were outcasts, they were hurt, that they were burdened, that they were not of this world, that things were not the way they were supposed to be. And always the people of God have suffered, and always God has remained faithful to the people of God, and always God has brought justice, and always that same God has been merciful and incorporated the enemies back into the people of God. The story is on repeat over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And so when John writes this text that can be big and scary and filled with meaning that to our ears can sometimes seem unapproachable, to their ears it was glorious not because there's some hidden code or meaning that they could get that we can't, but because they were able to see themselves in the text. They were able to see 
John writing to them and saying, you're going to make it. There's no reason for you to be afraid. I mean, yes, suffering will come, and we're going to cry with you about that. But Jesus is king and faithful, and the story is going to keep spiraling over and over and over again. If you've grown up in the church for a long time, you've probably heard a pastor say something about being in the end times and things being worse than they've ever been before. Well, in some respects, sure, but in other respects, not at all. And the Black Plague killed 50 million people at a time when the entire world's population was less than 500 million. Do I say that to make COVID not seem bad at all? No, please don't hear that. But I just mean that God is not overwhelmed by what you and I are going through right now. I don't mean at all to even look on the persecution that is happening today or the fact that more people died for their faith than ever before in the 20th century. And at the same time, the people of God have always been struggling. We have always been suffering. And Jesus has always been there with incredible hope for his people. And this is why I believe John gives us the final image at the end of Revelation, which for some people is old news, but for other people is groundbreaking. And that's that the earth does not end in a great ball of fire. The fiery texts described in Revelation are a refining fire. They are a, a beautification. They are a reconstitution of the way things were supposed to be. Revelation 22, the very end of the book, is a picture of not us all leaving and going and hanging out with God in heaven. It is a picture of heaven coming to earth. God finally living out the thing that we've always said, that he remains committed to his creation. He comes and he stays here for the rest of ever. And the imagery in Revelation 21 and 22, when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and there will be no tears or mourning or crying anymore because I will be your light, and those things are gone forever. They come straight out of the story. Ruth saying, Naomi, your God will be my God. Moses calling the people of Israel to commit their lives to God. Moses having to veil his face before God because God was so glorious. Suddenly God being able to hang out with his people unveiled. A tree of life sitting in a garden, untouchable. A tree of life sitting in the great and glorious city of the new creation with a stream, a river flowing out of it with healing for the nations. Revelation is not given to you and I to be afraid. And it's not given to you and I to be confused. It's given to you and I to refocus us as members of God's people who are in the same vein as God's people throughout history. And so it is not just the story or my story or their story. It's our story.